Good morning. You all right? Good, good, good. Happy New Year. Yeah. Um, I'd like to read to you some passages, plural, from Scripture. And as you know, um, up until today, we're studying in 2 Corinthians, so that's a good place to start. So 2 Corinthians, I'm going to look at um, two passages um, in chapter 8 and chapter 9. Really, we're looking at the whole passage, but we'll just, we'll have selections. A montage. Can you have a scriptural montage? I'm not entirely sure what a montage is. Usually it's to fill time before the big event, isn't it? That's what, uh, that's what they do in sports programs. So, um, 2 Corinthians chapter 8, and we're just going to read a couple of verses, um, which is 10 to 12, which says this, Here is my advice about what is best for you in this matter. Last year you were the first not only to give, but also to have the desire to do so. Now finish the work so that your eager willingness to do it may be matched by your completion of it according to your means. For if the willingness is there, the gift is acceptable according to what one has, not according to what one does not have. And then in chapter 9, so that might be over the page for you, um, just uh, uh, 6 to 11. Chapter 9, 6 to 11. 2 Corinthians chapter 9, 6 to 11. Remember this. Whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. And whoever sows generously will also reap generously. Each man should give what he has decided in his heart to give, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. And God is able to make all grace abound to you, so that in all things, at all times, having all that you need, you will abound in every good work. As it is written, he has scattered abroad his gifts to the poor. His righteousness endures forever. Now he who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will also supply and increase your store of seed and will enlarge the harvest of your righteousness. You will be made rich in every way so that you can be generous on every occasion. And through us, your generosity will result in thanksgiving to God. So I just want to read two other passages to you um, at the moment, just uh, quite quickly. The first is in, actually in 1 Corinthians 3. So the first letter. Interesting enough, 2 Corinthians is letter number 3. Sue explained all this to us. And 1 Corinthians is letter number 1. There's one in the middle. We don't get to see that one. Um, but 1 Corinthians 3 and uh, verses 10 to 15 say this. By grace, God has given me, I laid a foundation as an expert builder and someone else is building on it. But each one should be careful how he builds, for no one can lay any foundation other than the one already laid, which is Jesus Christ. 
If any man builds on this foundation using gold, silver, costly stones, wood, hay, or straw, his work will be shown for what it is, because the day will bring it to light. It will be revealed with fire, and the fire will test the quality of each man's work. If what he has built survives, he will receive his reward. If it is burned up, he will suffer loss. He himself will be saved, but only as one escaping through the flames. And finally, just to put this in context, what Jesus says in Matthew 6. Matthew 6, 19 to 24 is very well known. I'm sure many of you who read your Bibles regularly will know this passage. Jesus says in Matthew chapter 6, Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth, where moth and rust destroy, and where thieves break in and steal. But store up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where moth and rust do not destroy, and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. The eye is the lamp of the body. If your eyes are good, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eyes are bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light within you is darkness, how great is that darkness? No one can serve two masters. Either he'll hate the one and love the other, or he'll be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. So I know that at least a couple of those passages are quite familiar to people. So, this is a new year. That's a good thing. I like new beginnings. I've always liked new beginnings. Um, I'm afraid I'm really quite bad at keeping in touch with the past. I know people, and Arlene is kind of my conscience on this because um, we move somewhere else or I change jobs or I get involved with other things and everything about me just sort of moves. And I'm not very good at staying in touch with people. And not only have I never seen or spoken to anybody that I was at school with since the day I left, but I'm afraid I can't even remember their names. I try and remember. I can see the face, can't remember their I move on. I'm like that. Other people don't. But this is a new year, and new year is great. And what I want to say is that I feel that at this point, we are changing season. We have been in a season for a while that has been like a season of expectation, where we've been excited about what could happen. And I'm reminded of the Israelites as they got to the, the shores of the Jordan just before they moved into the promised land. And it was exciting to be there. It was exciting to be on the shores waiting. However, the time comes when the waiting is over and it's time to move out. And there's a verse in Joshua chapter 3 and verse 5 and it says this, Consecrate yourselves, for tomorrow the Lord will do amazing things among you. 
Consecrate yourselves, for tomorrow the Lord will do amazing things among you. So the Israelites were excited, but the time comes when they have to clean up, that's consecrate, line up, and move out. And I believe that we are getting to that time where we have to look at the option that the period of expectation is over and the time has come for us also to clean up, line up, and move out. And that's an interesting challenge. And I just want to talk about this and look at three areas which deal with that. And part of this very much is about our lifestyle. However, I want to start at a difficult bit. And we want to talk to you about accountability. Now, accountability is an interesting thing. You see, there is a bit of an evangelical myth. So people who became Christians over the last 40 years, is that you? It's not everybody here, but it's some. Often, inadvertently, I have to say, have been misled into thinking that Christians do not stand up on Judgment Day. And that's not true. Everybody is called to give account before God. Nobody is excused. You see, that we're left with this impression that Christians are somehow given a VIP pass on Judgment Day and drift through the departure lounge into heaven without ever having to give any account for what they have said, what they have done, how they have behaved, what they have used, all that God has given them for, and this is a myth. The Bible does not say this. Let's just go through it. First of all, in the Old Testament, and it says it several times, but I'll quote Ecclesiastes, for God will bring every deed into judgment, including every hidden thing, whether it is good or evil. Every deed. So that's everybody's deeds. God will bring them all into judgment. That's you and me, people. But every New Testament writer tells us this. Everyone. There are no exceptions. James tells us in 2.13, Peter in 1 Peter 4.17, and Paul in Romans 1.16, the writer to the Hebrews, also he says this in 9.27. But more than that, Jesus says it himself. Jesus teaches his disciples, and in Matthew 12.36 says this, I tell you that men will have to give account. Remember, we're talking men Male and female. God made man both male and female. Nobody's off the hook here. So, right. I tell you that men will have to give account on the day of judgment for every careless word they have spoken. For by your words you will be acquitted, and by your words you will be condemned. There's a passage in Proverbs which says that words hold the power of life and death. And it's interesting, but it's also why, if you remember the famous passage in Romans um, 10 verse 9, which says, if you believe in your heart, 
that Jesus is Lord and confess with your mouth that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Paul follows this up by saying this, for it is with your heart that you believe and are justified, and it is by your mouth that you confess and are saved. And Jesus says the same thing, because every careless word you sow, by, by your words you are acquitted, and by your words you are condemned. Everybody, you, me, everybody, according to Jesus and every apostolic writer in the Bible says that you and I will stand before the throne of judgment and we will give account for what we have done. We are saved in Jesus. We will not face eternal death because we have given our hearts to Jesus. But that does not let us off the hook. We get no VIP pass through to the departure lounge without giving account for what we've said, what we've done, what we haven't said, and what we haven't done. Nowhere in the Bible is that ever even hinted at. Now, I don't know, and <laughs> I don't know if you've been told otherwise, but there's nothing here that tells us that we don't give account. We do. Now, I'm not saying that for you to start becoming fearful. <clears throat> but I am saying that maybe to encourage you to become serious. You see, our, our safety, our security, our place in heaven is absolutely guaranteed by Jesus. Know this also, God is not an old man in a bad mood with a big stick just waiting to come and get you. That is not what the Bible tells us, but he is an honest and a just judge. So in the same way as we have, if we have had, and not everybody has, but if we have had good parents, we know they love us, we know that they will look after us, we know they have our best interests at heart, but we also know that they will call us to account so that we might benefit from it. We know this, don't we? God is the same. He is loving. You are safe in the arms of Jesus. But you're not off the hook. You're not off the hook. I know that's a hard thing to say, but what can I say? So we are saved, but that's it. We still have to give account. In, in Romans 14 and, and uh, 10b to 12, it says this, For we will all stand before God's judgment seat. It is written, as surely as I live, says the Lord, every knee will bow before me and every tongue will confess to God. So then, says Paul, each of us will give account of himself to God. So, Jesus says this. Can I have a slide, Mark? Jesus says this in Luke. For everyone who has been given much, much will be demanded, it says. And for everyone who has been entrusted with much, much more will be asked. Here's a, here's a list of, of famous things. Ten commandments. I don't know if you've come across ten commandments. But they work like this for what we say, for what we do, for what we do with what we've been given, 
for what we do with what we have, for what we do with other people, for what we do about other people's possessions. Here's the list. God is first. Is God first? Do we give other people other things, other hopes, other dreams, power that should belong to God? And so on. How do we behave? So, thank you, Mark. We'll not have the other one, if you could take it there. Thank you. So, here's the question. And, and James started this. So, blame James entirely, really, I have to say, for any discomfort you now feel. Because James, James shared with us, um, just before Christmas, about us being accountable. Now, there's an opportunity for all Christians to be accountable to one another now so that our accounts are more predictable later. Those of you who are of a financial bent, one of the things, if you have to produce annual accounts, is this. You don't want to find out what they say the week before you have to present them, do you? You don't, you know, when you're presenting your annual accounts, you're not looking for it to be a nice surprise like a Christmas present, are you? You desperately want to know what they look like before anybody else does, don't you? Yeah? Okay, well, it works the same way. If we have to give account for what we've said and what we've done, then wouldn't it be better for us to know in advance what that's going to be like? by perhaps, perhaps using a Christian friend um, or a wife or a husband or a parent or maybe a group and honestly talking through what we do with our life so that we're already giving account makes it a bit less of a shock later. Do you know what I'm saying? Now, so in that sense, just to say this, do we... <coughs> Do we consider ourselves accountable? Do you consider yourself accountable? It might be that you don't. It might be that you think, well, hang on a second. I do exactly as I please, and you're in no position to tell me otherwise. And you are absolutely right. I'm not, and I'm not going to either. I'm not going to tell you what to do. I don't intend to. I have enough trouble telling me what to do, if I'm perfectly honest with you. But at the same time, that won't change come judgment. I remember talking to somebody, and frighteningly, they were doing ministry training. Um, and they said to me, when I get to heaven, they said, I've got a thing or two to tell the Apostle Paul and a thing or two to tell God. I thought, I think when you get there, mate, you're going to be too scared to say anything. But it is interesting about our attitude, which is where we're moving. If you don't consider yourself accountable, then that's entirely your choice. And you're certainly not accountable to me, but you will give account to God, as indeed everyone will. And I know that that isn't the easiest thing to hear on the first sermon of the new year. Trust me, it's what it says.
So let's talk a little bit about then about attitude. Paul talks a lot about attitude in terms of how we give and how we use our life. It's all about attitude. Paul says in Philippians chapter 2, he says, doesn't he? He says, your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God a thing to be grasped, but being found in human form, humbled himself. And we are given the same basis. What is our attitude? So Paul says our attitude to what we give should be based on love. Jesus talks more than once about mercy over sacrifice. Now, I've always quite liked this concept just because it always amuses me when people look at this and what they think is, well, that means that I can be nice to people and I never have to give up anything because it's mercy over sacrifice. And that's, of course, not what it means. It means love over religion. It means do it because you want to, not because you're compelled to. Do it out of love, not out of guilt. Do it out of desire. That's why you do it, because you care. And Paul says this, all the time. He says, give because you want to, because God loves a cheerful giver. Rick Warren, who has a rather large church, a little larger than this, I, he has a sermon online where he says to his church, says, look, if you're not going to give to this church cheerfully, please don't give. In fact, more than that, I don't want it if you're not giving cheerfully. Now, he's absolutely right, because at the end of the day, it's the attitude that is worth more to God. God has everything anyway. You know what I mean? It, whatever you have, God already owns. He can take it off you tomorrow. He can take the lot. I mean, it doesn't mean He will, because He's a caring and a loving Father. What he's looking for is a heart that desires to give. Cheerful, not resentful. Give cheerfully. Give happily. What are you happy to give? Here's a question. What are you not happy to give? That's not the real question. The real question is, why are you not happy to give it? Why are you not happy to give that? How important is it to you? How important is it to you? Here's another, another attitude, an attitude of generosity. So generously. The Bible is full of this. If you scatter widely, you get a lot. Think of the parable of the, tenor, the, the, the talents. I'm just doing this mostly to deflect all the blame for any discomfort you're feeling onto James Monden here because he, it was his fault that that story was told. And, and I think it's only fair that he should take the blame for it. Anyway, think of it. Somebody is given 10 and they work hard and they risk it and they get more. Someone is given five and they risk it and they get more. Someone is given one and because they're frightened of losing it, bury it in the ground. So what are they left with? What they started with. And it works the same for us. It works the same for us in our lives. If you are given your salvation by Jesus, praise God. 
If at the end of your life that's still all you've got, because you've never told anybody about Jesus, you've never involved yourself in any Christian work, you've never been on one of those great adventures which God will open up to you, some of them really scary, but still worth doing, then at the end of it, when you get to heaven, you will face judgment, and the question will be, what have you done with the truth that I've given you? What have you done with it? Jesus says, store up treasure in heaven. Paul says, you will be made rich in every way so that you can be generous on every occasion. Are you rich? Can I tell you, can I tell you something that I discovered this week or God revealed to me? You probably know it already. It's one of those, I was talking talked to somebody yesterday, and they were describing how they ran downstairs and told their wife something that God had revealed to them, and the response from their wife was, well, sure, you know that already. Anyway, so here we go. One of the fantastic lies that Satan tells Christians is this, that no matter how much you've got, you haven't got enough. You're doing without. It isn't enough. you're, You're struggling Now, I have slept in shanty towns where people haven't got any food at all and don't know where the next meal is coming from. And they find someone on the street and give them a place to sleep and are glad to do it. And they really don't have anything. When Paul talks about the Macedonians in 2 Corinthians talks about a very impoverished church that gave very generously. But Satan would have us believe that we are poor so that we cease to be as generous as we could be. It's a lie. What is the opposite of generous? Can I have that slide? What is the opposite of generous? Is the opposite of generous fearful? Are we, are we not generous because we're frightened that there'll be none left for us, or that we might miss out, or we might need it again for a rainy day, or that we might be being ripped off or made a fool of, that we're going to give generously and then actually find the person or the people that we're going to are actually doing better than we are? How embarrassing. And what is it? Is that the opposite? I don't know. I'll just put it up as a speculation. You know, is the opposite of cheerful reluctance? Is the opposite of a being obedient because we love being obedient because we're guilty? What are the opposites? These are not. I'm putting these down as not good motives. It's interesting, isn't it? What is the opposite? What is our attitude? Two more. Thank you, Mark. If we could just have it off, thanks. One of the things the Bible talks a lot about in terms of giving is being honest in our giving. And Paul encourages this in 2 Corinthians. He says, if you haven't got it to give, don't give it. If you don't want to give it, don't give it. That's honest. There are a couple of stories, a rather scary one about a couple called Ananias and Sapphira. Are you familiar with it? Well, Ananias and Sapphira sold a piece of land and then took some of the money to the church and said, here's all of the money. 
In the book of Malachi, which is the much vaunted chapter about tithing, God accuses his own people who are claiming that they are giving what they should when they are in fact holding back. What he's calling them to account for here is their dishonesty. Don't claim to give or to have a surrendering heart if we haven't. We need to be honest. And if we're going to give, we give because we want to, because we desire to, but don't claim and then hold back. Be honest. Two more that I want to talk about. The first one is be intentional. Is it your intention to give? Is it your intention to use what God has given you? Is it your intention? Or is, in fact, it squeezed out of you? Because if it is, then the idea would be to plan. I can tell you, this is what we do often. Maybe you do. We look at something we want or something we want to do, and we think, right, if I can just cut back a bit on here, save a bit there, change what I'm doing here, by this time next year we'll have enough money and we'll be able to go and do this, or we'll be able to buy that. Do you ever do that? If I'm going to take on this new activity, I'll have to cut these ones out, but that'll be okay, and then this will be great. What about the concept then? Right. So what we're going to do is we're going to look at what we're spending, and if we cut a little bit each month, by the time we get to next December, we'll have this much to give to God's glory. In the Western church, and I'm not, and I really don't mean this to judge anybody or to be con. In the Western church, this has almost gone out of, gone out of fashion. The concept would do that, because our, our lifestyle, and, and everybody tells us to do this, is that we must overextend ourselves financially all the time. If you can afford a £200,000 house, you must try and get a £250,000 house, because that's a good investment. If you can afford... 10,000 pound car, try and get a 15,000 pound car. If you can go to, I don't know, Bognor Regis on holiday, try and get to the south of France instead. We are told always to overextend. We're told do it now as well. So spend your money before you've even got it. Have you noticed that now? People making money on this, by the way. What about the opposite? What about saying, I will reserve deliberately to give. To give to God's glory. I will reserve time. I know I can't right now, so I can't today because I'm committed. And this is what I'm saying. See, it's one thing to look at what we have now and give it. It's another thing to say, my aim is a year from now or two years from now, I will have this. I will have this bit more, this bit more, this bit more. I am planning to invest in the kingdom of heaven. Do we do that? You might say, Graham, you're asking too much. No, I'm not, because I'm not asking anything. It's not my call. But a culture change in the Western church 
to deal with how we invest in the kingdom of God would turn the whole church upside down. It would turn the church upside down. And for two reasons. And you might say, well, the main one is, well, the church would have more money, people in the church would have more time to more service. No, that isn't the bit that would change, the, turn the church upside down. The thing that would turn the church upside down is that the priority that Jesus was being given in his church would have radically changed. That's the bit. It would be the spiritual shift that would make the difference, which is scary. So, accountability, attitude. Finally, this is our opportunity to look at ourselves. Audit. Nobody has the right, and I don't assume it myself, and I certainly don't say any of this to make you feel guilty or condemned in any way. But we're talking challenge. Here's the challenge. Can we have the, the slide, Mark? So here's a question. What do we do with our money? What do we do with our time? What do we do in terms of what we prioritize? What do we do with our possessions? What do we do with our commitments? Can we give account for them? What has God given you? Do you have a house to live in? What do you do with it for God's glory? Do you have an income? What do you do with it for God's glory? Do you have gifts? Do you have talents? Do you have the ability to be ambitious, to look at things and see their possibilities? Do you do that spiritually? God, these are God-given things. It's not just our gifts. Our ability to see what is possible is given from God. Do we ever use our vision for that? Can I tell you, I'm a man who has almost no business acumen. So when other people see an opportunity for business, I'm always really impressed because I kind of don't notice it. It's a bit like women's hair. When, when Arlene says to me, do you remember such and such? And I go, no. She'll say, well, she's got long blonde hair. And I'll say to her, well, if she hadn't got any at all, I'd probably notice. <laughs> but actually, I, I never notice. I never notice. I don't see it. And I'm a bit like that with sort of business opportunity. I never see them. I don't notice them. So those that do, that's a gift. Do you use that for the church, for God's glory? You know, those who can see how something can be made. Those, another one I'm really hopeless at is space. I don't mean space, I mean space. So I can look at a space and Ollie will say, will that fit in there? I have to measure it obsessively 16 times. I cannot look and see. And how to make the best use of it, I can't do that. Other people can, I'm always really impressed. It's, it's, it's God-given. Do we use that to help us use our church and our premises better? Do we do it? These are, it's more than just money, people. It's more than just time. It's, all, it's everything, if you understand what I'm saying. 
Ecclesiastes says this, if we think to the future all the time, we end up never committing to anything. We're back to, to fear. It says, whoever watches the wind will not plant, and whoever looks to the clouds will not reap. You don't know the path of the wind or how the body is informed of the mother's womb, so you can't understand the work of God, the maker of all things. We have to step out and not be constantly reserved. So, an audit about what do we do with our life and what do we do with our time. Second thing I want to ask is this. Can I have another slide? Thank you. Are we grateful? Do we appreciate what we have? Or in reality, do we actually think we're badly off? Do we look at all we have and actually think, oh, well, that doesn't work, and that's broken, and that'll need fixing. That's more money. I haven't got a minute. Do we, do, is that how we think? Because as long as we think that, we will hold in. Is generosity the opposite of fear? Do we think we're missing out? Do we look at what everybody else has and think they're doing better than us? Better how? I kept telling the story. I hesitated about telling it, but just, just so you know, when I was originally thinking about this, I remembered a TV play that I once saw years and years ago about a man in his 40s who was sort of losing his mental capacity. And it was very poignant. It was quite sad. But at one stage, his wife gave him the housekeeping money and sent him off to buy the weekly food. And when he came back, she said, well, did you get everything? And he said, well, no, but I got this shiny top. Look how it makes a tune. And I got this little sparkly thing, which the light catches. And all the housekeeping money was gone, and the guy had bought junk. And she was caring. And she sort of went... Oh, what I fear, for me personally, is to go before God on the final day and his eyes be full of expectation, thinking of all the giftings he's given me, all the opportunities he's given me, all the stuff he's given me, all the wonderful people he's surrounded me with, and said, so... What have you done with it? And I show him a load of junk, and he goes, Oh. How rubbish would that be? Seriously, it bothers me. Apart from anything else, we want to be grateful. We want to be excited with what we've got. The more grateful we are, the more generous we'll be. So here is, here is our spiritual priority. This is my suggestion on audit. Where do we get our spiritual input? Is the world telling us we're badly off? Is the world giving us plenty to moan and grumble about? Is the world making us fearful that if we give out to God's kingdom, we'll somehow miss out for ourselves, which is not what God tells us? Is the world telling us that our priority has to be us because nobody's looking out for you. Where is our spiritual input coming from? Don't think that that isn't spiritual input. Those are lies 
but they affect our spirit. Where is our spiritual input coming from? Where do we serve? What do we commit to? What are our priorities? Is our priority to make our Father proud of us? And He wants to be. He's not, he's not harsh. Is our desire to look at what Jesus is doing and share and join in? Is that our priority? Is that what excites us? What do we do with our gifts and talents and intellect? But most importantly, and I suppose it is the key thing, are we prepared to be accountable for it? Are we prepared to be, you don't have to be accountable to me, by the way, you're not. But at some point we have to give account. Are we prepared to be accountable for what we have done, what we have said, what we have shared? what we have given, what we have kept, what we have used. What we've got is an opportunity this year. There are no end of jobs needing doing in this church. Children's work, practical jobs, flower arranging. We, we're looking at opportunities for outreach coming up. There's no end of things in which your time and your talent would be massively valuable. This church just about financially breaks even. The bulk of its income comes from a small percentage of people in our church. But we know this anyway. We know. We don't have an awful lot. We, we could really improve on our gift aiding if it, we were talking about money. If we were talking about prayer... Are we praying together? I was having a debate with somebody recently, and they made a very good point, said, well, Jesus went off on his own to pray. And I did point out, but we are the body. We are Jesus' body. So if we're the body of Christ, then what that would say is that Jesus' arm went off on his own, and his eyeball went off on his own, and he didn't. We are called to pray together. I know that requires time and commitment, but we are called to do it. It's part of our spiritual warfare. We are a body. How are we putting this together? Nobody in this church is going to suggest to you what you should do. That's up to you. If you think, like James suggested, that it would do you good to meet with a couple of Christians or another Christian and be accountable to one another so that you can examine these things more honestly, I'd recommend that as a good idea. But if you want to do it on your own, as it is. But as we move into a new area and a new time for service, it's an opportunity for us to review how we live and what we do. And we can turn this church upside down. We can turn this town upside down. The ground is already taken, like the Israelites about to cross over Jordan. The war is already won. It just doesn't look like it is. But until we clean up, line up, and march out, we never discover how great the victory actually is. So my prayer for you today is, if you don't know Jesus, get to know him, because he will change your life. Isn't that right, Pauline? Amen. But more than that, more than that, He will take you on the biggest adventure you ever went on. You will see more, do more, have more, be involved in more than you can ever do on your own. 
Give it up for Jesus, and you will always get back more. Let's just pray. Father God, release anybody here from my errant words that have left feelings of guilt or condemnation. And if I have spoken them, then, Lord, I repent. Forgive me. But, Lord, fill people's hearts in this room and mine too with the sense of the possibility of God's kingdom and how, by loosening our grip on our lives, we can walk into something bigger in You. Lord, just release us in Jesus' name, I pray. Amen.